All right, we're gonna study scripture together, so if you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Psalm chapter 55. We're gonna start reading it in just a second. So we're in this new series, so excited about this new series. We're gonna be spending some time in the book of Psalms this summer, so I uh, gave you a little bit of a, um, a peek behind the curtain last week that this whole year is about the life of faith. So we started the very first Sunday of this year asking the question, the very first Sunday this year, how can I grow in faith? And then we studied through the book of Nehemiah to see what God does when he builds a people, a community of faith in the city, surrounds them with fortified walls and then works on the people inside the walls. And then we came over to the, the message of the people of faith in Romans chapter one through chapter five. And then we came over into the practices of those who wanna cultivate a deep relationship with God by faith. And so that's the series that we were just in. And now we're coming over into the Psalms, which I suggest to us gives us a vocabulary of faith. They, they help us understand what it looks like and sounds like to live our lives with our eyes up and out which is what faith is, upward and outward in its orientation. So I hope we're gonna see that in many different Psalms over the next several weeks, starting with Psalm 55. So I'm gonna start reading in verse one. If you'll follow along, I'll read the whole chapter to us, then we'll get to work. Verse one. God, listen to my prayer and do not hide from my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me. I'm restless and in turmoil with my complaint because of the enemy's words, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down disaster on me and harass me in anger. My heart shudders within me, terrors of death sweep over me, fear and trembling grip me, horror has overwhelmed me. I said, if only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest." How far away I would flee, I would stay in the wilderness. I would hurry to my shelter from the raging wind and the storm. Lord, confuse and confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they make the rounds on its walls. Crime and trouble are within it. Destruction is inside it. Oppression and deceit never leave its marketplace. Now it is not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. It is not a foe who rises up against me, otherwise I could hide from him. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion and good friend. We used to have close fellowship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. Let death take them by surprise. Let them go down to Sheol alive because evil is in their homes and within them. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. I complain and groan morning, noon, and night, and he hears my voice. Though many are against me, he will redeem me from my battle unharmed. God, the one enthroned from long ago, will hear and will humiliate them because they do not change and do not fear God. My friend acts violently against those at peace with him. He violates his covenant. His buttery words are smooth, but war is in his heart. His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God, you will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and treachery will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. 
Psalm 55 lets us hear what it sounds like when you walk through hard times with your eyes on the Lord. This is what it sounds like. Look, the Psalms are full of pain. We've studied the Psalms before. Maybe you love the Psalms particularly for this reason because they finish your sentences in a fallen world. They get you. They understand the hardship of living in a fallen world. And so the the Psalms are familiar with pain. They speak from a range of difficult experiences, both inside problems like, like sin, personal sin, guilt, shame, and external problems, outside problems like injustice and military threats from nations surrounding or, or one of the acute ones in this passage is, is the issue of betrayal. So inside threats, outside threats, it's this whole spectrum of human experience and emotion. You know, sometimes in the, in the Psalm, you get a clue right there at the beginning of the setting that's behind it, the, the circumstance, the event, the experience that prompted the psalmist to write that psalm. So some psalms will start out with those words of ascription right by the number, the chapter number, and they'll say, you know, this is what David wrote when he was fleeing from Saul, and so on. This psalm doesn't tell us what the experience was. We know it had to do with betrayal, so it could be maybe pointing back to 2 Samuel chapter 15 when David's right-hand man, Ahithophel, turned on him, not only turned on him, but used his, pressed his wisdom into the service of, a, of another king who was meant to draw up and be overwhelm and overthrow David's kingdom. That, that king was Absalom. And so maybe it's referring to that, maybe it's something else. The sad thing is there are many candidates in Old Testament history prior to this that could be this experience. David was betrayed more than once by more than one kind of person. So it's hard to pin down the exact experience. But here's the thing. Though betrayal is the sort of acute area of suffering that's in this psalm, it's not the only experience that's here for us. And I hope we're going to see that. And in this series, as we study week after week, I hope we're going to see, the name of this series is Seeing God in the Psalms. I hope we're going to see God himself shining out of the pages of the Psalms and that that's going to be used by God to strengthen our faith to enable us to get our eyes up and out and see him in his all-sufficiency and his strength and his wisdom and his power to save his people. Look, the, the question that, that greets us as we start into this series isn't, will you have problems as you live in this world? That's obvious. We only have to live long enough. We will all suffer. That's an inevitability. That's... That's because we don't live in heaven. So that's inevitable. The question isn't, will you have problems as you live in this world? The question is, how do we, as people who have trusted in Christ, respond to suffering, respond to hardship? Where will we turn in the face of trials? And will we allow our instincts to be trained by God's word? Will we allow our instincts to be trained, our reflexes to be trained by truth? Or will we just do whatever comes naturally in the moment? Whatever prompts us in that particular moment? And so we have, friends, a vocabulary of faith. We have patterns of sound words here in this text and they're offering to us three things that people of faith are invited to say. Number one, I need help. In other words, that's not the voice and words of a quitter. It's possible to say, I need help, and to say it from faith, to say it with our eyes up and out, looking to God. One of the, we've talked about this before, so one of the most common 
traits of ancient biblical poetry is parallelism, where they'll take two lines and the second line will be in relation to the first line. So there's a form of parallelism called synonymous parallelism where the second line states the same thing as the first line just using different words. But they're actually saying and driving at one thing, the same thing. So for example, a classic example of synonymous parallelism is in the Lord's Prayer. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There it is, right? Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so you've got this parallelism. It's saying the same thing in two different ways. It's sort of like a, if you've ever seen a photo and a photo negative, you see the photo of a chair in the living room and you see the photo negative of the chair in the living room. The coloration is different, but it's still the chair. It's the same thing here. In one sense, he's saying, don't lead us. In the next line, he's saying, deliver us. In one sense, he's saying, it's temptation I want to avoid. In the next one, he's using a substitute for temptation and saying evil, but it's meaning the same thing. And the same thing is true over here in verse one. Listen to my prayer. God, listen to my prayer and do not hide from my plea for help. So, so those phrases are parallel. They're synonyms. Listen to and do not hide from are photo and photo negative. They're two ways of saying the same thing. And, but notice the light that that throws on what prayer means in Psalm 55 verse 1. He says, listen to my prayer and do not hide from, and then he substitutes another word for prayer. And what's the phrase that he substitutes? My plea for help. In other words, this is in your notes, Prayer equals pleading for help. That's not everything that the Bible says about prayer, but it is what verse one says prayer is. Prayer is pleading for help. You ever, you ever bump into the prayer police, right, as a Christian, and they're, you know, they're overhearing something that you're praying and something you said gave the impression that was concerning to them and so lights start flashing behind you, they pull you over and they say, "Uh, you know what, it sounded like you were just talking about yourself and your need and your experience and all your hardships and you're just so concerned about your own life and it doesn't sound like you're really concerned ultimately about the glory of God. Well, yes, obviously, God's glory matters more than anything in the entire universe. But where did we get the idea that God's glory and our good, our joy, our being satisfied by God are enemies? That those are mutually exclusive, that you have to pick one or you pick the other one, but they don't actually go together. It reminds me of something you see when you watch little boys, for example, play with with action figures or with army figurines. I used to have those army figurines with the base underneath their feet, right? The little green army soldiers. And what would happen if you were watching is when the, when the battle would rage and when it would get to a fever pitch, the way that you would know that's happening is I would grab one of the army figures and I would smash the top of the other army figures. It wasn't unique to me, it's just what you do and you know the one on top is the one that's winning. <laughs> and in a similar sense, Christians, we can do the same thing. We can take one group of great Bible passages and use them to smash the other ones. As though these two things are living in an adversarial relationship. No, look, the beauty of the Christian faith, not to coin a phrase, is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. These things are not at odds. He gets glory by being a refuge, by being a shelter and a rock for his people. These aren't militating against one another. 
the psalmist, this is in your notes, just the statistic, he uses I, me, my 27 times in 13 verses and he relates 11 hard experiences in eight verses. Over and over, right from the beginning. God, listen to my prayer. Do not hide from my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me, right? He, he's desperate. I love what author Paul Miller says in his excellent book, A Praying Life. He says that, that prayer is a moment of incarnation. Prayer is God with us. Prayer is God getting involved in the details of my life. It's not just some nebulous, detached experience. It's God coming on in, into the realities of our lives. You see those descriptions down in verse four. Just look down. My heart shudders. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. How do you feel, psalmist? He's telling you. Actually, he's telling the Lord in verse four. Look. Christian friend, prayer is what happens at the intersection of real life and the all-sufficient God who meets us in our need, who hears our prayers. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is because you hear God in the Psalms in no uncertain terms saying, you can pray verse four kind of stuff. And that can still be faith. You can say stuff like, here's what I'm feeling. My heart is shuddering. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. And it's not even nine o'clock on Tuesday morning. That's what it feels like right here in this experience. And God endorses that in his prayer book. 150 prayers right in the middle of our Bibles. You notice that his requests are in the form of an imperative. He's not asking. God, listen. Listen. Do not hide. Pay attention to me. Answer me. Look, faith learns to say, I need help. And I need it now. I'm not sufficient for this. I need you. So it learns to say, I need help. And second, it learns to say, this is hard. This is hard. We, we get to overhear David's anguish. So he uses terms like, I am restless. I'm in turmoil. He feels pressure from the enemy. He's talking about disaster. He's talking about harassment, right? These words are just flying off the page. You see all these experiences. He's bringing his real life into the presence of his God. That's what prayer does. Bring real life with us into the presence of the one who can do things about it, who can sustain us. That's what we're talking about. God shining out from this text as the God who sustains. This is in your notes. David is not too proud to plead. Are you too proud to plead? Am I too proud to plead with God? And you think about what is David after in all of this? What is he, what is he gunning for? What's the, what's the win? What's the prize, right? It, it becomes clear in verse six and seven where we just sort of hear his wishful thinking. He says, I said, if only, if only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and what are you looking for? I would find rest, that's what I want, I need rest, I can't sleep. I would find rest, he goes on to say, how far away I would flee, I would stay in the wilderness, I would hurry, second thing he wants, to my shelter from the raging wind and the storm. I need rest and I need shelter. That tells you what he's not experiencing. He doesn't feel rested. He doesn't feel sheltered. It, it feels like ver those verses, verse six, seven, and eight, it feels like we've stumbled onto the man's journal 
and we're reading his private journal entries and he's looking for rest and he's looking for shelter. And here we move, as we come to verse nine, we're moving from what David feels to what he sees. Verse nine, Lord, confuse and confound their speech for I see violence and strife in the city, and he goes on to talk about that, right? It's in the city, that seems to be particularly the problem. Much like when we studied through the book of Nehemiah, the most acute problem in the book of Nehemiah isn't the outside opposition, it's what happens when the opposition's coming from inside the walls of the city. You see that phrase used over and over, look at verse nine, in the city. Verse 10, they're making their rounds on its walls. It's a walled city, so the people who walk on top of it, that's law enforcement. So these aren't enemies from the outside nations. These are guys who are walking the walls on the top, and some of them are whispering rumors about what to do about David. It's a walled city. Verse 10, crime and trouble are within. Verse 11, destruction is inside it. Verse 11, oppression and deceit never leave its marketplace. It's problems on the inside of the city. And all that trouble and furor and stirring up that's going on seems to be connected to this one root source. And that's the most painful thing about this psalm to David because the root source is one of his closest friends. Verse 12. It's not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. It's not a foe who rises up against me, otherwise I could hide from him, but it's you. A man who is my peer, maybe this is escalating these comments, peer, my companion, my good friend. We used to have close fellowship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God and skip down to verse 20. My friend acts violently against those at peace with him. He violates his covenant. His buttery words are smooth, but war is in his heart. His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn swords. He doesn't know who to trust. Everybody's talking a good game, but I don't know if there's a dagger concealed beneath those wonderful, beautiful, flowery, flattering words. Right, look, the, the Connect With God series that we were just in, it could have been a whole lot longer than it was. Well, the reason that we decided, even in a short series, to dedicate one week to the question, how can I forgive, is because relational strife, friction, betrayal, gossip, that's par for the course, even in the life of the local church, right? We sin against one another all the time. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we trip over our own feet and fail to serve and care for one another or even leave our world to even listen well enough to you. And this happens all the time, right? Look, as Christians, we have God's word to inform our relationships. Love what J.D. was even praying just a moment ago about the world will know that we're disciples by the love that we have for one another. There ought to be no one in the world who has a clearer understanding of how to lower the heat in our relationships, how, how to pursue peace in our relationships than Christians. As God's word informs, it wants to touch down, it wants to land in our relational world. Nobody ought to demonstrate better what, it's, what a legit apology sounds like than Christians. Nobody ought to be more eager to enter in to to put a stop to injustice than Christians. And that, by the way, is what's aimed at in verse 15. Verse 15, let death take them by surprise. Let them go down to Sheol alive because evil is in their homes and within them. I'm not gonna rehash all the things we've said in previous studies of Psalms about the imprecatory prayers, prayers about God coming in and acting in judgment to bring down evil, right? So, 
Let me just say this. So the, the so-called imprecatory psalms or prayers are basically prayers asking God to make it stop. <laughs> That's basically what those prayers are about. Stop. So I see violence in the city. Make it stop. I see oppression and deceit. Make it stop. You think about that. So is it okay, for example, in our time, 21st century believers, is it okay to pray that the acts of those committing domestic violence would come to light and that they would be brought to justice? Or do we only have the option to pray for the salvation of the one who's doing all the hitting behind closed doors? It's a false dilemma. We don't have to choose. We can pray for God's mercy. We can pray for his saving grace, for scales to fall from his eyes, and we can pray that God would make it stop and use the justice system to make it stop. Those aren't in competition. They're not fighting against one another. The instinct to pray, and for that matter, to work against injustice and oppression is not only permitted in scripture, is positively commanded in scripture. It's a vital way that we reflect the image of God and we display his character to a watching world. It's critical for the church. Do you think about the language that's here in this psalm? Does it sound like the way that you pray? So I'm always thinking about when I'm praying the psalms. If I wasn't looking at God's word and praying the psalms as a regular pattern, I wonder, would I ever sound like this? So for example, this is in your notes. Do you talk about, to God about what you're feeling, saying, and seeing? Because that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. I feel restless, I feel in turmoil, verse two. I'm saying this, I wish I could find some rest. I'm saying this, I need shelter. I'm seeing this, violence and oppression in the city. He's, He's talking in the presence of God about what he's feeling and saying and seeing. Look, the psalmist here is modeling for us the vocabulary of faith. Faith learns to say, I need help. It learns to say, this is hard. And finally, faith also says, I belief I believe there is this beautiful progression of first person statements in this psalm he moves from I am to I said to I see to verse 16 but I call in light of all the mess that I am feeling and saying and seeing I call verse 16 and last verse verse 23 and I trust in you It's real. It's real praying. You know, it's hard to read the Psalms and get the impression that God wants to speak to him as if nothing's wrong in our lives, right? As as if the sole purpose of prayer is to review the finer points of theology in front of him, as though that's the goal. I love what Paul Miller says in that book I was referencing a moment ago. He says this, "We, we know that to become a Christian, we shouldn't try to fix ourselves up. But when it comes to praying, we completely forget that. We sing the old gospel hymn, just as I am, but when it comes to praying, we don't come just as we are. We try like adults to fix ourselves up. Private, personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. Oh, that may be true for so many of us in this room and Psalm 55 is beckoning us forward into real prayer. Look, if you wanna fall out of the practice of prayer, start by nurturing the idea that God doesn't wanna help you. 
He's disinclined to help you. Start thinking of prayer as sort of a field full of landmines, right? There's tripwires everywhere. Start thinking of prayer as just this kind of just stacks of paperwork with with red tape, stacks of paperwork with protocols and and rules, right? And and all all this fine print. And if you don't discover the fine print, and you pray without a knowledge of the fine print, oh, you just blew the whole thing. You, you just ruined the prayer. Heaven is silenced you because you broke protocol, right? You got honest or, or you, you mentioned your needs too soon, right? You're supposed to pray for at least one full paragraph of adoration, at least one full paragraph of adoration before you get to sound like you're dying. We have all these unwritten rules and stipulations as though God is causing us to jump through a million different hoops before we can get help, before we can call on him like a father because we're children and we don't know our way out. We don't know our way around. We need his grace. Look, if that, what I just described, if that's how your prayer life died, Psalm 55 wants to welcome you back. Wants to invite you into the practice of gospel-driven praying. Look, don't pray in a way that forgets the gospel. Don't pray in a way that forgets the story that's reflected every time that we pray. Here's our story. We know this. this is the central story of the whole Bible. We have sinned against the God who made us. Our sins deserve punishment. We've been separated from this holy God. We don't deserve to have our prayers answered. We deserve to be judged. We deserve condemnation. And instead of condemning us, This is the good news. This is why gospel's called good news. Instead of condemning us, God sends his only son, Jesus, to enter into this world, to live a perfect life, unlike the one that we've pulled off so far and will ever pull off in our lives. And then he goes to the cross, hangs there for your sin and my sin, bears the punishment of God's judgment against our sin, rises from the dead and says, who wants in? Who will trust in what I just did? The sufficiency of that perfect work of atonement. And when we believe in him, all is well. We are reconciled to God once and for all. We're brought into his forever family. We're justified and accepted by him forever. Look, the most important thing for you to hear in this room, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, is put your faith in Jesus He is the only savior. He is the only hope of this world. There is hope outside of him, nowhere only in Christ. And the moment you put your faith genuinely in him, humbling yourself before him, you're reconciled to him forever. Your sins are forgiven, your past, present, and future. And as it relates to prayer, so coming over into prayer, once that happens, Christian friend, there isn't a moment in your life, even on your worst day, that God isn't absolutely, irreversibly for you inclined to hear you, inclined to show you mercy, not waiting for you to twist his arm, right? And David has found that gear in verse 16. He's, he's found that gear, you hear it. But I call to God. Now this upward, outward faith is happening and he's preaching truth to his soul. The Lord will save me. He says, I, I complain and groan and he hears my voice. I'm not talking to the walls. I felt like I was a moment ago. I know I'm not talking to the walls, though many are against me. The contrast is absolute. Though man is against me, though many are against me, he will redeem me. And now he starts reviewing his theology. <laughs> but but it's, not, it's not a matter of protocol. It's, 
it's a heart of faith that's looking up and out to a God who is, his words, enthroned from long ago. God, the one enthroned from long ago. In other words, it's that God who will hear me, the enthroned one, the absolute sovereign, the monarch of the ages. That God, that God will right the wrongs in his own timing. Do you, this is in your notes, question for us to think about. Do you pray as to a God who is enthroned? Or do you pray to a God who is a souped up version of yourself? He's small. He's working on things. He's kind of wringing his knuckles because it's taken a while to figure out what to do next. Or is he on a throne, unperturbed, immovable in his sovereignty? Yes, so often our ancestors in the faith, and we read this in the Psalms and everywhere else in the Bible, and they're groaning and they're walking through suffering and hardship and the truths about God that rush in, the truths that are first responders in the moment of need are truths about how big God is. So they resize their God and then God resizes their trials. And that's how faith ends up working in the hearts of his people. He says to his people in Isaiah, have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he gives power to the weak. The God who hears our prayers is the sovereign, ruling, reigning king. And the gospel tells us that that God is for us in Christ. David doesn't yet have the full picture that we have because we have a New Testament. He, He doesn't see all the glories of Calvary and the glories of the cross, and yet what he knows is already fortifying his faith in the midst of hardship. So much so that he's not just looking upward, he starts looking outward. He's not just recognizing God is in charge and God is over all things. He's starting to whistle for others and say, hey, get in here, I got a message for you. And he says, what's that message? Verse 22, hey you, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. That's the first thing he says when the passage goes church-wide. He whistles for the church and he says, you all, you need to cast your burden on the Lord and you need to do it knowing he will sustain you. The first promise that's extended to the community of faith is he will sustain you. That's why the name of this message is the God who sustains. He goes on and says, he will never allow the righteous, right after he says he will sustain you, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You might say, but I feel shaken. Right, so do I count? I thought he said he'll never allow the righteous to be shaken. I'm shaken, see, look, I'm, I'm shaken. So how do you square this? Well, remember, this is why, where it's important to remember the way that these poets wrote, this parallel structure of the phrases where they interpret one another and, and you get clarity from other passages and other words that are right around it. So for example, that's right after he says he will sustain you, he says he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. So there's parallelism working there. The parallel statement, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken, The parallel to that, the synonym for that is he will sustain you. In other words, what does that mean? It means this. By shaken, he means God will never allow the righteous to be shaken so as beyond recovery, to be shaken beyond redemption. Look, this is why as Christians we may grieve and we do grieve and sometimes we grieve very deeply but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 
we do not grieve as those who do not have a sovereign God who's on his throne, unperturbed. There's a difference. And you see, God moves in on the soul of David and he so strengthens him that he enables him to look out to others and strengthen them. This is in your notes. Don't just cast your burdens on him. Offer God's promise of grace to others. Don't just do your own casting. Invite others to do their casting. To find help in the arms of God. Look, no one blames David for not saying, cast your burdens on the Lord in verse one. That would be the prayer police. Nobody blames him for that. But from verse one, God's agenda for the psalmist, where God is taking the psalmist from verse one is there. He's taking him up and eventually he's taking him out. He's taking him to look out at the community of faith. Look, I can, I can name members of our church who have walked through tremendous, tremendous hardship And I could also name members of the church who have walked through that hardship in such a way that the hardship comes full circle and their pain is stewarded for the consolation of others. That's when our pain comes full circle. That's where we start to realize he does redeem our brokenness. He does give us beauty where there was just a pile of ashes. He uses us for his glory. Look, after exhorting, and he exhorts his brothers and sisters, and then he looks directly at God in verse 23. God, you will bring them down. You will right the wrongs. That's above David's pay grade, but you can handle it. You've got options. You can right the wrongs. And then David, I just love the way this closes. He closes with this resolution that demonstrates the sustaining grace of God. And what does he say? But I will trust in you. This is the noise that the enemies are making, but I'm going to trust in you. You you keep doing the saving and the redeeming. You bring down the proud in your timing. Here's what I intend to do. Keep trusting in you. Keep my eyes up and out. Look, a soul a soul that is unshaken, a soul that is sustained by God's grace isn't just constantly saying everything is awesome. Yeah, just fake it till you make it. Just keep saying it and somehow you're gonna start to feel it. No, a soul that's unshaken doesn't say everything is awesome. You wanna see a soul that's held in the strong grip of the grace of God. It's a person who may feel completely exposed to the elements of the raging wind and the storm, unable to sleep. I can't sleep, I have no shelter, but nevertheless, I will trust in you. That's what faith does. That's what God does in our hearts through that gift and grace of faith. We can, believer, friend, we can express the full range of the vocabulary of faith that we see in each critical turning point in this psalm. I need help. This is hard, but I believe. And we, we can then turn toward one another and we can turn outward to the world to get back to where we were a moment ago when we were praying for the nations and for God's grace to work powerfully in North Africa. We can say to the nations, hey, whistle, cast your burden on the Lord. There is a redeemer who saves. There is a God who is enthroned above all gods and he sustains us in this present darkness. Look, look, may the truth of Psalm 55, it doesn't just wanna steady us, it wants to send us. It is steadying so that he can say, but I call to you. In the midst of all this craziness, I call to you. And then he can whistle for others and say, hey, get in on this. Here's the truth of it. 
You can cast your burdens on the Lord. We have a world around us that is without rest and without shelter. And we can show them where. We can show them where rest is found. We can show them where ultimate shelter is found. We can let them hear Christ speaking through our mouths and saying, hey, all you across this wide world, restless world, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come. Come and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's all found in knowing Jesus. Church, the the climactic application point here is keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, upward and outward. That's how we get stronger in faith.